0: I remember often, as, as we th- and I've mentioned this before, as we think about the different worldviews that people can have. And when this came on the scene in the, in the 60s and 70s, the idea that a different person is going to see the world in a different way. Each person is going to have a different worldview made up of their experiences and their culture and, and their values and their beliefs. The next question that was soon to be asked was, well, then who can know that their worldview is correct? I appreciated the ministry of Francis Schaeffer that helped us understand and reminded us it's very easy to test a worldview. You test it by reality. Does it fit reality? We we live by laws of, of motion, laws of nature. Newton's first law of motion says that every object is going to either remain at rest, or it's going to remain in uniform motion in a straight line, unless it's been compelled to change. So, an object, unless it's been that is at rest, unless it's been compelled to change by a force on it, is going to stay at rest. Or, an object that's not compelled by uh, air. Um, friction or, or wind resistance or something like that, say an, an object that's hurling through space, it's going to stay on that trajectory at that speed indefinitely. It's that first law of motion. The second, the third law of motion you're probably familiar with is every action, every force in, in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. You know, if you are looking out over a a placid lake and it starts to rain, every raindrop that hits that lake is going to cause ripples. It's going to cause a reaction on the surface of that lake. We also live by other laws like Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. You know, no matter how early I get here and get things set up for that 8.30 service, it seems like by 8.30 I'm trying to get the soundboard to do what I need it to do or I'm trying to get the the message to airdrop onto my iPad or something like that. Um, If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. I learned about a, a political law this week that I'd never heard about. It's called O'Sullivan's Law. And, and it, it might explain a little bit of what, what uh, our nation is experiencing. It's that any organization or any group of people that doesn't make a constant effort to be conservative will become liberal, will become progressive. Because That is just the nature of how things slide. To remain conservative takes daily effort. That's just a... O'Sullivan's Law, it's called. Not, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, that's just politics. But in the somewhat, in many ways, it's not just politics. It's not just the habits of a religious practice in terms of conservative and such. But all those aside, most importantly, we are called to conserve the truth as God has provided it. And we can only expect that people are going to be tempted to drift from it. That is the default, to drift, to rebel. Those are the two ways that someone can um, end up in a more distant relationship with God than, than they had before, rebellion or drift. And that's just the tendency that unless we conserve the truth, as God has provided it. And the tendency is to believe the original lies. That began that drift. That lie that was told in the garden. You're not surely going to die. If you do what God has told you not to do. You're not going to be separated from him. You're not going to be separated. If physically. Death. Death. God's keeping this truth from you. That's what was meant by, for God knows what's going to happen if you give in to this. In fact, you can be like God, deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. That's what's meant by knowing good and evil. Those original lies still cause drift and rebellion today. And in the meantime, it's helpful to ask ourselves, what am I hoping for? What am I putting my hope in? The Apostle Paul had been concerned about the Thessalonian church's growth in Christ and was concerned that they they thought he didn't care about them. That was a great concern of his. It closes out the verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, we read, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. See, those, those people that, that they were surrounded by were, were telling them, see, he was just another one of those charlatans, one of those fly-by-night preachers that comes in preaching some new strange truth, and then he's gone. He got from you what, what he wanted. Who knows what it was? Maybe it was just a resume, and now he's gone. That's what they were being told. And he was concerned about that. The Lord had put that concern on his heart. And, and chapter 2 finishes with these verses. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. In the sense of we're living for God's work in you. And we're reminded again that this is why SOS for the church has always been It's always stood for send our Savior. As we're reminded, chapter after chapter in 1 Thessalonians, that that's what it comes back to constantly. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What are you hoping for? So we continue on in chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to you to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And when he says, but now, he's basically saying, as soon as we heard this from Timothy, we got out our our writing utensils and and we started writing this letter, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, We have been comforted about you through your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. What does it all come back to again, that reminder again, what is our hope? The return of Christ. That's what we're to be hoping in. That's that's the only place that our hope can truly be in and trust that it'll come to fruition. The truth behind the perspective of the Apostle Paul should lead you to redefine safety. Redefine safety. Paul writes that he sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. This this term establish means to strengthen. It's kind of like uh, you see those, those uh, cathedrals in Europe that there's the main body of the building, but then you'll see these other architectural uh, pieces of work on the outside of the cathedral that, that supports the walls. They're called buttresses. They, they better establish the building so that it will not move. The same term is is used here to, to buttress their faith, to establish, to strengthen it, to further disciple the believers in Thessalonica was the purpose of sending Timothy there so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand That we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. When someone says, if you believe in Christ, if you trust Him as a Savior, you should never face affliction or suffering again. That idea doesn't fit reality. And therefore it's not true. See, God's truths fit reality. They could be tested to be true. For the Thessalonian believers, those that came from the Gentile world, they were persecuted and treated like traitors to the traditions and to the culture. Those who came from the Jewish world, they were pressured to add obedience to the law, to their understanding of the gospel. They're like, hey, you can have both and. Right? Right? Just continue to be a Jew observing the Old Testament law and, you know, you can add this Messiah stuff to it if you want. We are destined for afflictions, for following Christ. As Paul wrote to Timothy later than this in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I want you to notice, what was the priority in sending Timothy to them? What was their greatest need? What, so that he could come there and ward off all the persecution, stop all the suffering, answer all the naysayers? No, it was to establish and exhort them in their faith. That even amidst it, they would not waver in believing God's truth. He continues in verse 5, for this reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Paul was worried about them. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The fact is suffering for Christ can be the context in which the tempter can try to make us walk away from our commitment to him and to his people. Just be like, I don't know them. Suffering for Christ can, can simply mean having our basic rights removed, rights that we recognize in our country that, that other believers don't have them recognized, but they're, they're, they suffer them removed nonetheless. Being silenced in the public square because of our faith in Christ. Being censored online because of our faith in Christ or our views about marriage or sexuality. Being told you're in trouble if you meet together as a church. These aren't sounding too unfamiliar as much these days, are they? One writer says when trouble comes, Christians often react by doubting that they are where God wants them to be. They often think that they've done something wrong and that God must be displeased with them. Yet storms often come to believers to make them able to stand firm rather than to blow them away. It reminded me of when they when they first built this, this uh, strange building called Biosphere 1. And it was to uh, work on how why, might we set up an environment where... Uh, humans could live on Mars or something like that. Well, they grew trees to, to put into Biosphere 1. and and um, But they found that once they planted the trees, as they would get some weight to them, they started falling over. They, they, weren't, they weren't able to, to thrive the way that they would out in nature. They realized that as a tree grows... It's strengthened by the wind. It has to be buffeted back and forth. And in fact, as the leaves catch that wind, it's strengthening the trunk so that when the tree grows in it and it builds girth and, it, and, it has, and, and its limbs become heavy, the wind has trained the tree to be able to carry that weight in the same way, as this writer says, yet storms often come to believers to make them able to stand firm rather than to blow them away. Paul refers to Satan here as the tempter, still telling the same lies. It's not going to affect you if you give in to that. God is keeping the, his best from you. If he's he's letting you go through this, he must be keeping his best from you. You can be like God, choosing for yourself what's right and what's wrong. God would never want you to risk something as important as your safety. The truth is that God doesn't want us to risk our effectiveness, our joy in the Lord, our close walk with him. Paul's concern wasn't that the believers were going to lose their salvation when he talks about that their labor might be in vain. His concern that his labor might be in vain, not that their faith might have been in vain. He already shared with them his assurance of their their saving faith in Christ when he talks in in chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul's concern was that they would lose not their salvation but their joy, their fruit of the spirit, their effectiveness, their spiritual fruit. You know Martin Luther said, "Whatever your heart clings to, or or relies upon, that is your God." Do you cling to safety? Our earthly definition of safety, safety from afflictions, safety from sufferings. God's definition of safety is safety and fruitfulness, safety and joy, safety in Christ, which can't be taken away from you. Growth in Christ should be more assuring than earthly safety. As Romans 3, verse 5 through, 3 through 5 puts it, we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. So in other words, the reason why we should be rejoicing is because we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit because God's love has been poured into our hearts because as we experience suffering, we develop endurance and we develop character and we we have hope through it because we see that God is at work. And it takes suffering to do that. The key for enduring discomfort is is being established, strengthened in our faith, reminded of God's truth constantly. It's what we're doing here right now. That's the key. And doing so daily. Jesus told his, his disciples and us in John 16, I have said these things to you. This is why I say these things to you. That you may have peace, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he told them what he told them so that they could have peace during that trouble. You know, during World War II, Almost every nation in Europe that was under Nazi occupation had a resistance movement of their citizens that were working uh, behind the scenes at great, at great risk to, to their personal lives and to their families that were working to resist the occupation of the Nazi army. Many of the resistance groups were in contact with British special operations and were supplied by the American Forces, And after the Allied landing in France on June 6, 1944, the French forces of the interior, or the FFI, undertook military operations in support of the invasion. All of a sudden, it was like, we got an army here. In fact, by the time that the Allied forces invaded Normandy the Free French forces had swelled to more than 300,000 regular troops. They participated in the August uprising that helped to liberate Paris. And there in in August 1944, these resistance groups mounted an anti-German insurrection in Paris. And the Free French 2nd Armored Division drove into Paris to finalize the liberation. In fact, the the Allied forces held back and said the French forces need to liberate Paris. And they actually let them go through probably greater risk and greater suffering in that battle, saying their people need to see that it was them that did the liberating. Becoming a Christian is like joining the resistance behind enemy lines. When he returns, we will actually be a part of the liberation of this world under the tyranny of Satan. Whether he returns while we are still alive or when he returns and we return with him as we'll see in our verses. What steps of following Christ are you afraid to take now for fear of financial insecurity or of job insecurity or of family rejection? As a part of the resistance, what temptation do you need to resist and find help to resist while you seek to serve Christ now? Resist. Well, also the truth behind the perspective of the Apostle Paul should lead us also to redefine comfort. Redefine our understanding of comfort. Growth in Christ should be more encouraging than earthly ease. We read in verses 6 through 7, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What brought comfort to Paul and his team? That the, that the affliction had lifted? That the suffering was over? No, that they're good news of their faith and their love. Paul and his team were concerned that the new church had folded under the pressure. That they had stopped meeting together, but they hadn't. He's overjoyed to hear that they've weathered the storm and they're stronger for it. And it's not just the Thessalonians that were in distress and afflicted. Paul and his team also were suffering for the gospel, as you see. But look here how Paul defines life. For now we live. I don't have to be anxious anymore about this. If you are standing fast in the Lord... For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. They still had discipleship to go on. But remember, Paul and his team had only been there for three weeks. And they left behind this young church. That was going to move forward amidst huge persecution and suffering. And Paul was reminded of, of the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and God's work for his people. Even as a young church amidst persecution. What amazing perspective of joy. We live because you are standing fast in the Lord. Abundant life and joy come come from seeing others standing fast in Christ. Standing fast in the Lord, not in their own strength. Right? He's not saying, you're the man. No, he's saying, God is good. God is powerful. But still the concern is that they might further, they needed to be further strengthened and grow more and be supplied in what was lacking in their faith. Even, even with the victories that they achieved, it was more important that they grow in their faith and grow in what was lacking. Paul is, you know, is a, is a picture for us of rejoicing no matter what the circumstances are I mean the vacation of a lifetime is only memories for a few years I'm already at the place where Kelly has to remind me of things we've done you know I'm like what we we met with those people we we went there no no remembrance of it But what is experienced in the promotion of the gospel will echo for eternity. I mean, that, that's, that's the joy that Paul writes about to the Philippians. Philippians 1, 6 through 7. From a Roman prison. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ of Jesus Christ. That's what the goal is. That's what we're looking toward. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and then in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And he says in verses 12 through 14 of Philippians 1, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it might become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he makes that amazing statement in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and the die is gain. In other words, death is just the icing on top. Because then I get to be with Christ, Physically personally, what is more comforting to you? That your child or your grandchild landed that dream job or that they're walking with Christ? I think we know which one should be more important to us. Redefine what comforts you. That's what the gospel wants to do. That's what God wants to do as we grow, as we're reminded Be brought back to that. The truth behind the perspective of the Apostle Paul should also lead us to redefine relief. Growing in Christ should be more promising than even earthly relief. He writes in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. Now I want you to catch here. This is a profound theological statement about the deity of Christ. In fact, uh, Edmund Hebert says, One can hardly conceive of a stronger way for Paul to indicate his unquestioning acceptance of the lordship of Jesus and his oneness with the Father. (laughs) May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Those who are persecuting them as well. You know, guys, in all of the twists and turns that we see going on in our culture right now, the true battleground is right here. It's to maintain, to regain love for those who disagree with us. It's to not be hateful or angry toward them. So he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I, I want to say that as it should be said. May he establish your hearts blameless. In holiness before our God and Father, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But but first, he, he he prays that they would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. The picture here is like a container that is overflowing. That, that it might increase and abound. If you've ever been in one of those water parks for kids, where where there's the whole jungle gym, you know, underneath and water spraying everywhere, and you're sitting here in your chair watching it, or or or. Uh, staying somewhere where you're not going to get sprayed quite as badly, but sometimes they'll have this huge bucket on top, and that bucket's constantly being filled with water, filling, 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 until it gets to a tipping point, and then a huge bucket just pours out under everybody that's standing underneath it. That is the picture here, that it might increase and abound, overflow with love, not just for each other, but for those that were outside of the body of Christ as well. Jesus said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, now he said this. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Filled with the Spirit, we can be filled with love for each other and for those outside of our body as well. Edward Hebert also says, genuine Christian love is the one thing in the Christian life which cannot be carried to excess. So in other words, it's the one thing in the Christian life where we should never find ourselves saying, oh, that's just way too much. That's too much love. It should be abounding and overflowing. And the intended result is that their hearts would be Blameless in holiness before God. Referring to their hearts, it refers to their whole the wholeness of their inner state, their thoughts, their feelings, their will, their, their whole personality. And the basis of that abundant love is hearts which God had established in His gospel. I'm no better than them. Yet thereby the grace of God go I. The gospel tells me that I'm a sinner. Saved by grace doesn't make me special. It makes me special in God's eyes. The New Testament commentary says, the self-centered person at best will have an element of weakness and instability. But where anyone has learned to love the Lord his God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself, then he has a firm foundation for life. And and his hope is for them to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So that holiness, that holiness before God is that state of holiness. Meaning when when a person comes to realize that, that they have a problem, they have a sin problem, but God took care of that problem by laying their sins on Christ. When they come to God and say, God... I am sinful and my sins keep me from having a relationship with you but I believe that you put my sins on Christ and I believe that he died and he rose again so that I could have his righteousness put on me. That, that blameless, that holiness before God is what's being talked about here. The righteousness of Christ that when God looks at me, he sees me in the holiness of of Christ, holiness before our God and Father. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says Paul didn't pray that they would be sinless. That was impossible. He prayed that they would be blameless. That is, after they had sinned, that they would deal with it as God requires. And so be free from any unreasonable charge by their fellow men. So it means blameless before men holy before God. That is what is meant by the hope that they would be blameless in holiness before God. Blameless before men, holy before God. And when would they be found that way? Looking back again at the return, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His Holy ones. All those, those saints that have been made holy by the righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> you know, I, I read a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge this week, that that, that last push of Hitler's forces that was, was pretty hopeless, but it didn't seem all that hopeless to the Allied forces that were spread thin across that line. With all the liberated land behind them pushing toward Germany and into Germany. And when Hitler made that last push that as if it was going... The bulge is describing the bulge in the allied lines. Hoping that that last push was going to divide the allied forces. And somehow be able to separate them and weaken them. You know, the men that were on that line... They were waiting for relief, but the, it wasn't a beam me up Scotty type of relief. It was a hold the line until relief comes, and for them it would come in the, in the form of air power, of the overwhelming allied air power, but that had been grounded because of, of low and thick cloud coverage. So they had to hold that line until relief came. And we can have this tendency to think, relief is this, beam me up God, I'm ready to be done with this. But we need to define relief as being hold the line until relief, that air cover, comes. That's what's described here. Blameless before men while holy before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Jesus is going to return. And you know what's awesome is he's going to return with the very Thessalonian believers that are being written to here. Riding on his coattails. He's going to return with with Terry Hawkersmith. With LaRonda Zachary. With Rich Young. With Bob Measle and many other people that you can think of that died in Christ. He's going to return with them. And if he doesn't return before we die, he's going to return with us in holiness, his saints. We might think that God should should answer our prayer and always take us off of the front line. But we're really waiting for the relief of air support, if you will. You know, I, I'm, one of the things that I'm reminded of during Christmas season is the, the world's best um, uh, thing that they have to offer is Santa Claus. You know, and uh, one of the movies we, we watch in our rotation um, each season we watched last night is Elf. You know, in, in, in Elf, the sleigh runs on Christmas spirit, right? And, and, and that's, that's the world's idea about God. He's only as strong as people's belief. Like Santa's sleigh has got to ride on, be powered by people's belief. God is not dependent on us, not one bit. God is not dependent on the situation in our world in order to receive his eternal glory. His, his, you know, clausometer is not getting depleted by our culture. And the strength that is available to us to serve him amidst it is not being depleted one bit. And we are to hold the line. I want to say this too. We see more and more in our culture the vital importance of patriarchs and matriarchs. We have this tendency to think that the older you get, the less important discipleship is for you. That is not true. So many of you are patriarchs and matriarchs in your family. You might, you might be a young matriarch, but as far as the as or a patriarch, but as far as faith in Christ go, you might be it. It is vitally important that you hold to the truth. It doesn't come naturally. Drift is natural. It is vitally important that you remind yourself of the truth. You may be the only person in your family that is respected. And, and that people would listen to, to be reminded of the truth. So, if you're the oldest in your family, that is no small thing. And that is all the more important for you to be reminded of the truth. For you to, to gather people around you that remind you of the truth. Whether it be your small group, men's Bible study, right here on Sunday mornings. Don't discount the importance of being a patriarch or a matriarch in your family because those later generations they don't have the benefits of the culture pushing them toward the truth that you had you're that culture you're that push toward the truth don't let the enemy silence you Let's bow our heads Lord, we can.